A guy by the name of Brian Chappelle is a pastor, he's a teacher, he's an author, he's the president emeritus of Covenant Seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary just around the corner from us. He is also a founder of uh, and host of an organization called Unlimited Grace, and it's a half-hour uh, daily uh, Bible teaching program heard on the radio all over the United States. And he tells a story about when... Um, he and his father were sawing through a, a, a log. The, the log was rotten, and a piece of wood sheared off, and the piece of wood looked like a horse's head. So Brian, as a little kid, he took it home and then later gave it to his dad as a present, and this is the way he tells the story. He says, I, I attached a length of two-by-four board to that log head, attached a rope tail, and stuck some sticks on it to act as legs. Then I halfway hammered in a dozen or so nails to the two-by-four, of that horse, and wrapped the whole thing in butcher paper block, put a bow on it, and presented it to my father. When he took off the wrapping, he smiled and said, thank you, it's wonderful. What is it? <laughs> it's a tie rack, Dad, I said. See, you put your ties on those nails going down the side of the horse's body. My father smiled again, and he thanked me. Then he leaned the horse against his closet wall because the stick legs would not keep it standing upright, and for years he used it as a tie rack. Now, when I first gave that rotten log horse head tie rack to my father, I really thought it was good. In my childish mind, this creation was a work of art ready for the Metropolitan Museum. But as I matured, I realized my work was not nearly as good as I once thought it was. In fact, I understood ultimately that my father had received and used my gift not because of its goodness, but out of his goodness. His goodness. God is good. God loves us. God cares for us. And when we have seen and tasted, experienced the goodness of God, we will be different people. And that's why we're looking at this concept, this thought of grace. What does grace look like in my life? What does grace look like in your life? Uh, this summer we've been looking at one word that will change your life. If there's one word in the Bible, and there's a lot of words in the Bible, but because of the wonder and the beauty and, and the, uh, the, the broadness of this concept of God's grace to us, we can be radically different people if we've tasted and experienced God's grace. We're challenging the Bible to grow in grace. And we saw that from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They go together. Grace and knowledge, they go together. We know that we're saved by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 talks about we have been saved by our faith. Grace saves us as we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And last week, we looked at the, the beauty of God's grace and what Christ has done for us. And as we as we keep our minds and our hearts on the things above, as we look and pursue those things above, it changes us on the inside and gives us a different outlook on life and who he is and what he's done for us. And so this morning, as we look to the concept of grace again, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And I'm going to look at this concept of how grace transforms us. There is no doubt that Brian Chappelle's father was entirely different because of God's grace in his life. And when we have seen and tasted of the goodness of God, I know that we will be different people. And what Paul is writing here to Titus is how the grace of God transforms us and changes us on the inside. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Notice what Paul writes. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then, Timothy, Titus, are the things that you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Father, thank you. Father, I thank you for your grace. Father, I thank you for the way that you've changed my life, the way that you've changed all of our lives. Father, we simply open our Bibles and our hearts before you, and we ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, or through the songs that we would sing, that we would be reminded of your goodness and your grace, and we would lift our hearts to you and worship you. And Father, that we would be changed people. Father, that every day we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that every day that we live on this earth, that we live on this planet, that we would be a light that shines in the midst of the darkness. And Father, I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. So some 2,000 years ago, a godly religious leader by the name of Saul was wreaking havoc, if you will, on the church. He was trying to destroy God's church. So what he would do is he would travel from city to city, town to town, and he would find believers. He would arrest them, and, and he would and, and bind them up, and he would put them in prison. And then one day, uh, on his way to Damascus, uh, his life was radically altered. The resurrected Christ came to him and opened his mind and his heart and said, Paul, Paul, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul, Saul's life was radically changed from that moment on. He went from being a violent persecutor of the church to a professor of the message of the gospel of God's grace. His life was radically changed at that particular point in time. He experienced God's grace, and it transformed him on the inside. And he even wrote a testimony to God's grace in his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, notice what Paul writes about grace in his life. He says this, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. God's grace had radically transformed him on the inside. And it had such a profound effect on his life and his calling to the Gentile people that it changed his outlook, who he was. And everywhere he went, he began to tell people about the gospel of God's grace. It radically changed him such, in such a way that it gave him a new direction in his life. And it gave him the opportunity to live his life in such a way that people would come to know Jesus Christ. And what we know about Paul is this. He had a heart for the church. He recognized his call. He recognized what had happened on the inside. And he had such a burden for lost people that changed the trajectory of his church that he wanted to live his life in an entirely different way. He loved the church and he loved God's people. So he would go out, he would go from city to city, town to town, 
presenting the gospel and, and starting churches. And he had a friend by the name of Titus. Titus was on the island of Crete. And there was this church there, and maybe the church wasn't going so well. And what, what Paul wants to do is he wants to encourage Titus. Titus is all by himself. And he wants to encourage this pastor, this leader, and he wants to encourage him. He says, what I'm going to do is I, I want to write to you. And I'm going to write and tell you about the grace of God and how you are to live your life and to teach the people about the beauty of God's grace. And that's what we have here. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through this text and just pull out some principles about God's grace. And I, I think what we're going to see here is a couple of things. Number one, grace, grace shines. Stellar. Grace shines. Grace teaches us. Grace is able to anticipate the future. The last thing we're going to see is this grace is personal because it's costly. So that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. So let's begin at verse 11. Grace shines. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I, I hope that one thing that we are able to do this summer is this, to broaden your understanding of what God's grace is in your life, what Christ has done for you, and it changes you in such a way that you continue to shine. It's a light in the midst of the dark. So that be to your family, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, that you be a light that shines. This concept of grace is an incredibly beautiful word. The McAtees, if you know the McAtees are mission, they have a daughter by the name of Grace because they understand the wonder and the beauty of grace. And when we look at this concept in the New Testament, we are, we are reminded that we have this grace from God. It's this unmerited, God's unmerited favor bestowed upon sinful people despite where we'd find ourselves. That God gives us grace in the person of Jesus to transform us on the inside so that we are new people today, but also that we will be new people in the future. That my life is not only continuing to be transformed on a daily basis, conformed to the image of Jesus as I walk this life, but one day I'm going to be radically transformed in the future where I'm going to be like Jesus and you're going to be like Jesus. You think this struggle's hard? Yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. But one day, all of that is going to be changed. And, and I think Paul was so mesmerized by the concept of grace in his own life and what it meant and how he had embraced it that as he got to this concept of grace, he began to, to write about it and, and he didn't know where to stop because verses 11 through 14, it's all one verse in the original language. It's like his mind is thinking about the concept of God's grace and he doesn't know where to stop because grace is so beautiful and so powerful. It transforms us on the inside. Where do you stop talking about the beauty of God's grace? It's difficult. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, that God's grace is incomparably rich. And we're going to be beacons of God's grace throughout eternity. We're going to shine in heaven as objects of God's grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. That you and I are objects of God's grace, and we're going to shine in an incredibly beautiful way. Look at verse 11. Notice it says that the grace of God appeared to all men. What does that mean? The grace of God appeared. Well, first of all, it means this. That when he's talking about, when Paul's talking about the grace of God, he's talking about not just a, a, a theological principle or a concept. He's talking about a human being. He's talking about the God who left the wonder, the glory, and the perfection of heaven to come and to live on this earth. That's what the people living in the New Testament saw. They saw the gospel of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. He's talked about as being the God of all grace and all truth. So we see this idea 
the grace of God is, is comes to us in a person. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Notice what the, the text says. He appeared. It didn't, he didn't just show up. The idea behind the word appeared is just, it's a light that shines in the midst of the darkness. It's like there's this darkness out there, and you take that flashlight, and all of a sudden you shoot that flashlight in the back of the corner, and it illuminates whatever is in the corner. That's what it talks about. When Jesus comes, when he came, he was a light that shone in the midst of the darkness of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will what? Will not walk. In darkness because of who he is. And he appeared to bring light in our lives. In Luke chapter 1, uh, the, the gospel writer is giving a testimony of the, high, of, of the priest Zacharias. And uh, John the Baptist is, has been born. And Zechariah gives a testimony in uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 78. And, and listen to how he describes the ministry of John the Baptist, and and Jesus. Notice what he writes. He says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to point people to what? He's going to point people to the light that's going to shine in the midst of darkness. And that's what Jesus' appearing is. His life, his words, his deeds, his miracles, all of that, his victory over death, all of that points to a light that shines in the midst of darkness. And all of that came what? Because of God's mercy, God's grace given to us. In the first appearing of Jesus. He came as a light in the midst of the darkness so that you and I can walk out of that darkness, if you will, the darkness of our very soul. What's interesting in our text is if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, it talks about uh, making the, the teaching of God our, sainment, our Savior adorn or be attractive. He said, listen, what, what you need to do is to live your life in such a way that you adorn or you make attractive the teaching about Jesus Christ. You know what attractive or adorn has the concept of? It has the idea of, of you, you've got some jewelry. Maybe you've got five or six diamonds. And what you want is you want to put them on a ring or maybe you want to put them on a, on a bracelet or a necklace. And you don't just throw them in a bag and have somebody take care of them, put them in a a bracelet. What you do is you want to gather those out and you want to, you want to adorn them. You want to put them and, and arrange them in such a way that it brings out the beauty of, of a necklace or a ring or, or some kind of bracelet. That's what he's talking about here. The person of Jesus Christ comes to us and we learn about his life. And what he wants to do is he wants to transform us to allow us to shine in the midst of darkness so that we point ultimately to people the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done. As Christ changes our life, we become a light that shines in the midst of darkness to all of the different people around us. That's ultimately why we want to do Stellar and VBS, is to introduce people to the uniqueness and the beauty of Jesus. And he wants your light and your life to shine in the midst of darkness. So it's baseball season, supposedly, even though it's not going well. You know, uh, we've all added the Cardinals to our prayer list, you know, kind of secretly, 
Well, I, I grew up in Southern California, and uh, I, I watch a lot of baseball in Southern California. And there is a baseball team in Southern California called the Dodgers. And uh, these words were very familiar to me, and they will be familiar to some of you. It's time for Dodger baseball. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good evening to you, wherever you may be. That was the opening line the Los Angeles Dodgers fan heard so many times over the course of Vin Scully's 67-year career as a broadcaster for the team. I listened to him, and there's a lot of people all over the United States that listened to that man and the way that he would describe the game. When Scully died in August of 2022 at the age of 94, he received tributes from colonists, analysts, athletes, broadcasters, and friends from all over the United States. And they just gave example after example of some of his calls over his illustrious 67-year career. He called some of the most momentous uh, baseball uh, uh, calls uh, during his career, and I remember one specifically. And everywhere you look in his life, there were stories about him and his impact on players and broadcasters and other people, and how they saw his life, and they saw how he responded, not only to his job, but to the things going on in life. And this is what he said as he got closer to the end of his career. God has been incredibly kind to allow me to be in the position to watch and to broadcast all these somewhat monumental events. I'm really filled with thanksgiving and the fact that I've been given a chance to view. But none of these are my achievements. I just happen to be there. I know some people won't understand, but I think it has been God's generosity to put me in these places to let me enjoy it. His legacy was summed up by the way that he saw himself as a very normal guy. He said, I just want to be remembered as a good man, an honest man, and one who lived up to his own beliefs. And that's from an article remembering Vince Scully, the legend, the broadcaster, and a humble, faith-filled man. Vince Scully was a, a Dodger broadcaster, but more importantly, he was a man who lived out his faith and a worldwide stage to humbly point people ultimately to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that's what you and I, grace shines. As God continues to bring blessing and pour it out on us, grace shines so that we can hopefully draw people to the unique person of Jesus. There's Ephraim the Syrian. He's a fourth century writer and theologian. I don't read much of him, but I like what he has to say. This is what he said. Speaking of Jesus, he clothed himself in our language. That's humanity. That's fallen humanity. He wasn't fallen. He was sinless. But he clothed himself in our language so that, we might so that he might clothe us in his mode of life. In other words, he came to change us so that we might live for Jesus. And that's why he says this in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If we live by the principles in God's word of being a light shining in the midst of darkness, we are the light of the world. And that's, I think, what grace does. Grace shines in the midst of darkness. As we have experienced God's grace, we continue to go out and we begin, we begin to shine in the midst of darkness. That's the first principle I think we learn here. What Paul is reminding Titus. Second thing is this, grace teaches us. Look at verse 12. 
Speaking of grace, it's kind of an interesting statement. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In what way does grace teach us or instruct us? I mean, is it just a concept? Is it just a word on a, on a, on a page? Is it something we're supposed to memorize and memorize the definition? Are we supposed to look at the Greek word? I mean, is that what we're supposed to do with this concept and, and allowing grace to teach us? I, I wonder if there's a, a, another way of looking at this concept of grace and the way that it teaches us. Jesus is with his, his, his disciples, and, and Peter comes up to him with a really, really important question. He says, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive people? It's an important question because it's a relational question. We all get tangled up in relationships. And, and you remember what Jesus' response to Matthew chapter 18 was? He told him a parable. He told him a story. He said there was this king, there was this master who was, was out there living. And uh, there was a guy who underneath him who, who owed him some money and owed him a lot of money. And the guy came to his master. He came to the king and said, listen, I, I, I owe you so much money. There's no way that I can ever repay it. But if you give me time, if you give me time, I'll repay you. And the king, the master, you know what he did? He, he said, I, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to wipe out your debt. I'm going to take care of all of it. Imagine somebody doing that for you. $100,000, $200,000 debt that you could never repay. He wipes it all out. And then that man goes out who had a, a man underneath him who owed him maybe, maybe, maybe $100. And, and the guy says, listen, I, I'll pay you back. Just give me time. I'll, I'll pay you back eventually. And the guy had the audacity to grab him and demand the payment from him. Wait a minute, you owe me money, give it back to me. And people all around saw what was going on. They went back to the master, the headmaster, the king, and he said, listen, look at what this guy's done. And this is the words, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, it says, then the master called the servant and said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Here's the principle. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In other words, if Christ has done something in your life, and, and he has, he's wiped out, he's forgiven me of all of my debt. If he's so radically changed our life, shouldn't we be different? If I've experienced God's grace and God's mercy and God's goodness, shouldn't I be a different kind of people to the people I come in contact with who might be in debt to me? because of the way that they've hurt me, or what they've done to me? He says, be merciful, because I am merciful. We have been forgiven much, and what we need to know is that because we have been forgiven much, what we want to do is we want to be people of grace. And what grace actually does, it does teach us. Because when I'm looking at who Jesus is, and what he's done for me in my life, it's going to change my head. It's going to change my heart. And it's going to allow me to respond to people who've hurt me in an entirely different way. Because I recognize what I've done to Jesus and how I've hurt him and how I've been forgiven. And I need to have that same kind of attitude toward people. What we want to do is we want to be channels of God's grace because we have been radically changed by the gospel of God's grace. I saw a testimony from a, a, a heartbroken father yesterday. I was watching a, a video. A heartbroken father who lost his 16-year-old son in a very, very tragic way. And he's actually, he was, he was waiting for 
um, that the scene to be cleared and to waiting to actually uh, find out uh, what they were going to do with the son. And he, and he just left the scene. He went home, cleaned himself in, up, and he went straight to church. And the reason he went to church, he said, is because I knew that when I went there, I would find the grace and the peace and the comfort that I needed. In the midst of his tragedy, he knew not necessarily to go to a building, but go to a safe place where Christ is uplifted and the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is all going to be there. And that's what we are challenged to do because what Christ has done in our lives, what we want to do is we want to recognize that grace and we want to be different people. And that's what verse 12 talks about. We can be different in three relationships. Number one, self-control. This has the idea of the relationship with myself. If you go back and look at that word, self-control, is used in a variety of contexts six times in, in this letter. We need to be self-controlled people. This is the relationship with myself. Notice what he says, upright. This is your reputation with other people. What we want to do is, because Christ has changed us, we want to live our lives in such a way that we are living with integrity. We're living in such a way that people see that God's grace has changed your life. We want to be an example of God's grace to those around us, even God's grace to those who at times hurt us. That's why the parable of forgiveness is in there. Because we need to extend God's grace. Relationship to ourselves, self-controlled. Relationship to others, upright. And then relationship to God. Godly people, this is our relationship with God. We continue to pursue that relationship with God. Recognize that we've been touched by the goodness of God. As you examine your heart and your mind, as you meditate on God's word, are you allowing him to transform you into the very character of God, becoming more godly man or godly woman, no matter where we find ourselves? That's what the grace of God wants to do. A man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, um, he's a really, really heady guy. He's a pastor, and uh, sometimes I understand what he writes, and sometimes I don't because he wrote a long time ago because you get the these and the thous in there. But I like what he said here. He said this, an increase of love to Jesus and a more perfect apprehension of his love to us is one of the best tests of growth and grace. Am I increasing in my love for Jesus, recognizing all that he has done in my life and bring me to this place? Paul said, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to sin. Paul reminded us of what Christ has done for us in our lives and how we are to live our lives amongst other people, keeping our eyes on what Christ has done for us at the cross. So, grace shines, our lights are to shine. Grace teaches us when we see what God has done for us. It teaches us how to live. Thirdly, grace anticipates are you anticipating God's grace? There is a future grace, meaning that, that I've been promised some things. My citizenship is in heaven. I've been promised some things right now, and, and I, I've received them through God's word, knowing that I'm going to see them in the future. I just haven't grabbed a hold of them and partaken of them. Look at verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope. Our, our world... Is, is clamoring for hope, 
clamoring for hope. And he says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the word hope has this, uh, or wait, wait has this idea of, of looking forward to something with a sense of hope. And we have a number of pregnant ladies uh, in, in our church, in our, in our car. I, I guarantee you, they're waiting for a future day when that baby's going to come, right? Some of you may be planning for retirement. I had a friend of mine planning for retirement. For about two months, we heard about uh, the planning for retirement for his wife. They were anticipating this time when, when, she would be, when she would be retired. Maybe you're planning a vacation and you're waiting for that last day of work. When you get out, you finally get to go. And you know, I'm going to go away. We anticipate a lot. Are you anticipating the time when Jesus will return? That eminent return of Jesus in the rapture? That time when he will come and take us to be with us and he will change us and transform? Is that a part of your vocabulary? You know, if we're getting closer and closer, as people talk about, to the return of Jesus, does it change us and challenge us in such a way? Notice with 13 it says, as we wait for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait for him. There is a hope for the future for us. Do you believe that? There is a hope for the future for us because of what Christ has done for us. In, in 2007, there was a film that came out. It was called The Bucket List. Anybody, anybody familiar with it? Anybody watch it? it it's about, um, it's played by Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. And these two guys, uh, anticipating death, uh, what they want to do is they want to go do all these things before they, they call it kick the bucket, before they pass away. It's their bucket list. Oh, we want to do all of these things before we die. And go to uh, other things. Well, what's interesting, they did a, uh, an interview with Nicholson about the time the, the movie came out, Jack Nicholson, and, and this is what he said. He's reflecting on his personal life. He says, I, I used to live so freely. The mantra for my generation was be your own man, I always said. Hey, you can have whatever your rules you want. I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt. I'll pay the check. I'll do the time. I choose my way. That was my philosophical position while in my 50s. As I've gotten older had to adjust. And this is what he said. We all want to go on forever, don't we? We fear the unknown. Everybody goes to that wall, yet nobody knows what's on the other side. That's why we fear death. You know what I want to tell him? I want to tell him, yeah, we do know what's on the other side. There's a guy by the name of Jesus, and he came back. He came back from the dead. And what I'm going to experience and what you and I are going to experience because of the grace given to us in Jesus is absolutely phenomenal. It's beautiful. We're going to be transformed on the inside and our bodies are going to be radically changed. Sharon Nadeau is in a wheelchair. One day that wheelchair is going to be gone and she's going to be able to get up and walk and run and experience the beautiful transformation that Christ makes for us. Not only on the inside of me, not only on our future, but we are going to live in a radically different world. And all of that is because of what Jesus has done. Notice it says we anticipate the time when we will be changed on the inside. We wait for the glorious appearing of God, what our Savior, Jesus is called what? God and our Savior in the same verse because he saved us from our sins. Are you anticipating that time? You look forward to that? So, 
hopefully what we've learned is that, that grace shines. God wants us to shine. Grace teaches us because we reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Grace anticipates what Christ has done. And the last thing is this. It always takes us back to Jesus and the cross. God's grace always takes us back to Jesus and the cross. And, and, that's, what, and that's what Paul does. I'm going to invite our, our men and people to come. I, I want to just prepare your hearts from verses 11 and 12 for communion, the Lord's Supper. Jesus says that when we gather together and we take of the bread and the cup, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And verses 14 and 15, actually what they do is they point us to the reality of grace and that grace is personal, but grace is costly because of what Jesus has done. Notice what the text says. It says, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let me just unpack this. Notice what it says. It says, he gave himself for us. No one took Jesus' life. Nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. That's what he said. John chapter 10 says this. The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus said, I have come to offer myself as a sacrifice on the cross for your sin. So that's what we're reminding ourselves when we take the bread and we take the cup. We're thinking about, we're contemplating, remember all that Jesus has done in going to the cross and forgiving us of our sin. There's a, a book that I read, and it says life, the name of the book is Life of the Capital L, and had a poem in it, and I want to just read the poem, and it says this. It's by Nancy Spiegelberg, and the poem goes like this. It says, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket isn't that the woman of the well? If you only knew who it was who was giving you this living water, you would have asked for it. And I would have poured out this living water upon you and upon your life. That's what we've experienced in the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Notice what else it says, who gave himself to redeem us from all unwickedness. This has the idea, redeeming has the idea of freeing us from our debt. I, I'm free from the debt of sin. Now think back this past week. Is there anything that you got a little crosswise with? Any kind of thing that you did in your life that maybe wasn't appropriate? That's what he paid for, to redeem us. He, he paid for my sin. He went to the cross and offered himself as a payment for my sin to redeem me back from that pagan way of life. 
Notice verse 14, it says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that is, are his very own. Romans 7 talks about belonging to Christ. Whether I live or whether I die, I belong to Jesus. Life, death, where are you? Life or death, I belong to Jesus. And he has purified me, purified my heart, purified my soul because of his death on the cross. Listen, I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what the past is. The Bible says the very righteousness of Christ has been applied to you, not because of your good works or anything that you've done. And we accept that payment by faith. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment, and I'm going to allow you just to quiet your hearts before the Lord and to speak to Him. And to maybe confess whatever you would need to confess, to tell Him you love Him, as we seek the Lord for the grace that He's poured out upon us. Just quiet our hearts. Father, in the quietness of our hearts, we come to you and we thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us in willingly going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for my sin. Father, he became my substitute and all of my sin was poured out on him and it is finished. And Father, I thank you for that. And this morning we simply humbly come before you confessing our sin recognizing that we are in need of a Savior. And as we confess that sin, we reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the broken body of Christ for us, freely given to us. Amen.